Good morning. This morning's verse is from Philemon 17 through 25. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristocras, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Better than I could have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be up here as uh, as uh, a spokesman, a mouthpiece, a prophet of your word. Not new revelation, but your final revelation. And God, I'm grateful that, um, that your word has been given to us to uh, reveal um, our good and loving King to uh, point to um, our God who is just and holy and loving and good. And Lord, we just uh, want to make much, continue to make much of you this morning. And God, I thank you for the, uh, that you led us to this, uh, this potent book, this uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. So grateful, God, for the um, the reminder of your uh, love for us and your forgiveness, forgiving us, and the reminder of our obligation to do what's required as blood-bought men and women to forgive others. And so, God, I pray that I'd bring no offense. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, just put me behind your word, that I'd bring no offense at all, that you would um, prepare ears to hear this morning, and, God, that we would leave here um, transformed. Um, that we would look more like Christ than we did when we came in. We love you, and we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning again. Let me ask you, have you ever heard these glorious words? Put it on my tab. Charge it to my account. We were at Solitai, my wife and I, with Martina and Michael from the Czech Republic in Germany two weeks ago. We were sitting there and um, had a great meal, great conversation. I pull out my um, target card, put it back, pull back out my credit card. Michael pulls out his credit card and the waitress comes up and she says, sirs, just wanted you to know that that family that just left paid for your bill. And it was a family we knew. And it was just so like, really, thank you, Lord, for that. It was just such a kind gesture that we didn't deserve. Another story of charging it to my account is, uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years ago when we had a little bit more money than we have now, we belonged to a golf club, a country club. And my son Joey and my son Mitch were both in junior golf. 
they were in junior golf, and at the at the end of junior golf, we would we we actually had a number. I think it was four four nine. If you try to sign that, it won't work because we don't belong there anymore. Four four nine, and they would sign it. They can get themselves a Shirley Temple or a Roy Rogers or whatever they wanted after golf, and so we just trusted that that's what they were doing. And we got our monthly bill um, one particular month, and it was several hundred dollars more than it was supposed to be. So after um, graciously. Um, um, going right after the bartender there and saying, this isn't my tab. I didn't do that. My wife might have, but I didn't. I found out that my son Joey, after junior golf, bought everybody else in junior golf food and drink. He said, he said charge it to my dad's account. Hilarious. Another example is that um, Nancy and I, uh, Mitch and Yvonne, I'm going to use you as an example, we were at the hearth um, not that long ago, maybe, maybe a year and a half ago now, when we were sitting on the outside balcony um, in January in our long underwear, right? No, it was like June, I think. It was a nice, it was a nice day. And, um, and I've never done this before in my life, and I've never done it since then. But we were, we were sitting on this balcony, Nancy and I, Mitch and Yvonne Willett, and we were having this great conversation about, we were dreaming about what, if we could have Windsor look like any town on the planet, what would we want Windsor to look like? We're like throwing out ideas. Nancy and I are throwing out Redondo Beach because it's one of our favorite, it's one of our happy places that we really enjoy. And they, they threw out some uh, God-forsaken place in Arizona that nobody wants to be in, but they want to be back there so bad they're, they're deceived. You know? And then, uh, then there's this other couple that isn't with us sitting in this table next to us. And they, I still can't remember the town that they blurted out. It's, it's right up with San Francisco. It starts with an R. Um, it burnt down recently. Um, but they, they just blurted out. They went, blah! We went, are you talking to us? They actually had this talent. And so we started having a conversation with them. We, we conversed with them that, that, um, about what would be the best, what would Windsor look like if we could have it look like any town on the planet. And then we leave. And I was just prompted. Like, I've, I've never, this, this has nothing to do with, like, there's no, this type of goodness is not in me outside of God's spirit. Um, but I, as we were leaving there, I, I grabbed the waitress and I said, would you, whatever that couple owes right there, um, I want to pay for it. But you cannot let them know it was us. And so we paid for it. And we left. And it was a Saturday night. And we show up um, at WCC for gathered worship on Sunday morning. And I, this happened to be one morning during the year that I was actually um, on time. And I was at the door, too, greeting. And lo and behold, this couple walks in the door. They walked in the door. It's like, I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, I give them a hug. And like, we're best friends. And they go, because um, we know you bought our meal. And we knew you were a pastor because you, said, you told us you were a pastor. And we knew your name was Dan. So we Googled Pastor Dan in Windsor <laughs> and found this church. They'd never been back. No, they, 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 actually, it's a neat story that we built a really cool relationship with them. But there's just these, the glorious words, charge it to my account. Um, pay it forward. I'm not so fond about that. I've been in Starbucks line before, and I get there, and, and um, sir, your drink is free. And... Go figure, you'll order a tall pike place instead of a triple shot <laughs> chai latte with heavy cream in it. Um, but, but on the pay it forward thing, you know, there's usually not, you're not engaging people. It's just kind of a, a cool thing to do, I guess. Um, anyway, so, so this is going to get biblical here in just a minute, all right? Just hang with me a second. Um, in a very similar way, 
You and I owe a pile of debt called sin. That the Bible actually calls our sin a debt, and it's a debt that we can't pay. We can't clean our lives up. We can't do enough good deeds to cancel that debt. We owe a huge debt to a just and holy God. And praise be to God that Jesus paid it all. He paid all the debt, past, present, and future, for those who trust Him and put their faith in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. This short letter of Philemon is, is, it's, it's, is pregnant with, with application for Christians today. And this short letter is written to Philemon, but it's written to you and I and to all Christians to remind us of our, forgive, of our forgiveness and our acceptance by the Father. And it also reminds us of our obligation to do what is required, and that's to forgive others. And I want to emphasize what was emphasized last week from the text is that forgiveness is not an option for the believer. And um, I know I said it last week. It wasn't in my notes for this week, and somebody asked me afterwards. They asked me this question, so I'm going to say it right up front. What about repentance? Doesn't the person that I'm forgiven need to repent first before I forgive them? Yes, if you're going to a secular counselor, that's what they're going to tell you. But forgiveness actually precedes repentance. Forgiveness precedes, and, and even if they never repent, we're called to forgive. Even with those truths, what I've found in my own heart, and I've seen it in other Christians as well, is that when I'm reminded of the requirement to forgive those who have wronged me, I think to myself, I might even say it out loud, are you kidding me? How can I forgive this person that has wronged me so severely? Pastor Dan, you, may, you must not know the pain that I've experienced. And I can tell you right up front, I don't. I don't know what many of you have experienced. I do know that for many of you, it's way worse. You've been wronged in ways that I can't even comprehend. So I'm not um, belittling any ways that you've been hurt. And we're going to talk about that today. But forgiveness is a requirement. Paul is writing this letter from house arrest in Rome to Philemon. Philemon is a, is a wealthy slave owner. He probably had a big house. It says in verse 2 that, he, that the church met in his house. He had a, one of his slaves' name was Onesimus. Onesimus was a, ran away, and, and he ran to Rome. Uh, most slaves, when they run away, they run to a large metropolis um, where they can just get lost in the culture, usually Ephesus or Rome. And he is writing this letter to Philemon, encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus back. But not as an unregenerate slave, but as a regenerate brother in Christ. You see, when Onesimus ran away, that in God's providence, somehow Paul and, and his path crossed in Rome. Whether Onesimus sought Paul out or they just randomly connected with each other. But what we do know happened is that Paul led Onesimus to Christ. That Onesimus became born again as a result of Paul's ministry. We also know from this, from this letter that Onesimus became a very good friend of Paul's. He became useful or beneficial or profitable to Paul as well. It says that, that, Paul, that Paul actually in this letter told Philemon, I'd love to keep him with me. He's a huge help for me, but I must send him to you. It's also important to remember, I get this, this, this picture. I don't know that this is true. What I do know is true is that this letter went with Onesimus. It didn't go ahead of him. 
It went with him. So I've got this picture of Onesimus just knocking on Philemon's door. And Philemon had every right by Roman law to beat Onesimus, to brand Onesimus, and even to kill Onesimus. It would have all been legal. So Onesimus has this letter, this plea uh, for, uh, from Paul to Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. Last week we looked at verses 8 through 16 where Paul started his appeal. Not a command. He, this is a very uh, brotherly, uh, appealing letter. Paul's not commanding Philemon to do anything. He's appealing to Christ in him to do what is required. And I'm going to say it again. What is required of Philemon and is required for every one of us is to forgive any wrong and every wrong, no matter how big or how small that's been committed against us. Last week we saw that Paul encouraged Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother, not as a slave. He didn't say, receive him back a brother, not a slave. He said, receive him back and treat him as a brother. Treat him as a brother. Colossians 3.11, Paul wrote this to the church in Colossae. says, um, actually, I got that in a different part of my sermon. Sorry. So Paul, in appealing to Philemon, has nothing to gain here. Think about it. Paul has nothing to gain. Onesimus is profitable to him. Um, he is a dear brother. He's a dear friend. Um, he's losing this guy. He's sending him to Philemon. And he's putting Onesimus' life at risk. That Philemon has every right to punish Onesimus. In verse 17, Paul continues this appeal. To receive Onesimus in the same way you would receive me. Listen to this. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And this word partner is the word koinia. It's the same word as fellowship or partnership in Christ. And by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, every blood-bought Christian is in fellowship and mutual relationship with other Christians, particularly in the context of the local church. And this fellowship, this koinia, this partnership involves both privileges and obligations. And one of the obligations that Philemon or that Paul is addressing here is the obligation that every Christian has to forgive and to ultimately be recon- work towards reconciliation. And this fellowship, this koinia, this partnership is energized by a shared faith in Jesus Christ as the crucified and resurrected Lord of the world. And the bond that holds this partnership or this koinia together is love. Paul's saying this, in essence, he's saying this. Philemon, if you have true fellowship and communion with me, receive Onesimus as myself. This is an incredible picture. This is the gospel. It reminds us of our Lord Jesus Christ who appeals to our Heavenly Father on our behalf. This poor runaway child is in fellowship with me, Father. Receive him, therefore, as myself. By faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we can expect to be loved and received by the Father in the same way Jesus is loved and received. If you know Jesus Christ, that the Father doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. That your sin has been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Does it mean that when you sin and I sin that there's not some kind of discipline? Though there might be. But Paul is telling Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. In the same way that Jesus says to the Father, Father, receive him. Receive her as you receive 
me. Paul appeals. His appeal keeps building on the last appeal. It grows stronger and is more compelling as the letter goes on. Back in verse 16, receive him as a brother, not a slave. The cross is even at the foot of the cross. Excuse me, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Paul writes in Colossians 3.11, here, at the foot of the cross, there is not a Greek, there's no Jew, there's no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, and Christ is all and in all. And in verse 17, receive him in the same way you would receive me, a man who has never wronged you. Finally, here in verses 18 through 19, Paul hits it even harder. And I want you to note here, Paul's promise to pay all that Onesimus owes, coupled with the assertion that Philemon owes him back. Verse 18, if he has wronged you, Philemon, at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Of course Philemon is wronged, Onesimus, or Onesimus is wronged Philemon. We don't know to what extent. We don't know if maybe he stole from him. At the very least, he's been embarrassed. At the very least, his dignity has been robbed as a slave leaving. At the very least, I believe that Onesimus cost Philemon money. All slaves had value to their master. Yet Paul said that if you are wronged at all, Philemon, if you are wronged at all, Christian, or if somebody owes you anything, charge that to my account and I will repay it. If he wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, it's pretty comprehensive. It's understood that Paul had a problem with his eyes. We know that from scriptures, that Paul was probably had some form of blindness and could not see well. And as such, he wasn't uh, accustomed to writing his own letters. He, was, he had a scribe. He oftentimes would, well, all the time, he would dictate it. In fact, this is the only place that I see in scripture where Paul says that he actually wrote it with his own hand. And what Paul is saying here, the point of the letter to Philemon is reconciliation. And Paul says, I feel so strongly about this that that I've taken the pen from my secretary and I wrote the equivalent of a first century IOU with my own hand. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's saying, I will repay whatever Onesimus might have stolen. Indeed, according to Roman law, Onesimus was liable to pay to pay Philemon back whatever he robbed him. And, and you gotta ask the question, what is Paul doing here? What is what is there here for us? I think Paul is doing two things here. First is, he is so desirous for Christian unity for the sake of moving the gospel forward that he will do whatever it takes to reconcile Christians. And hear me on this, that we have no worse witness in the church, the local church and the big C church, than Christians bickering with other Christians and not forgiving one another as we have been forgiven. Who wants that kind of gospel? The, the, the centerpiece of the gospel is our forgiveness when we didn't deserve forgiveness. And when churches and schools and um, Christian companies are splitting without forgiving one another, it grieves the Lord. And Paul is saying here that I'm going to do whatever is in my power to help you, Philemon, reconcile with Onesimus. In fact, even though I don't have a lot of money, sign that debt over to me and I'll be responsible with it for it because I want to see you and Philemon live in harmony with one another for the glory of God and for the sake of the mission. 
2 Corinthians, I had a Bible. There it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think if Paul had a life verse, this might be it. You know, Paul's doing all kinds of crazy things. People ask him, why do you do the things you do? You're getting kicked out of towns. You're, you're being beaten. Um, you're, you're shipwrecked. Why do you do what you do? And he responds in verse 14 of chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls me or controls us, compels us. Because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, Paul, Paul's a one-string guitar. All he cares is about the mission of Jesus Christ going forward. And he's not going to tolerate Christians that are living um, unreconciled lives together. This is a very encouraging letter. He is a, appealing. He's not commanding. But he's, he's desperate. He says, Philemon, I'll do whatever it takes. Just put all that debt on me, but just take him back as a brother, not as a slave. So that's the first reason, is that Paul just has a desire for Christian unity for the sake of moving the gospel forward. Number two, in doing this, in, in taking this debt upon himself, or at least saying that I'm, I'm willing to take this debt, he reminds Philemon of the price, price paid for his own forgiveness. All of humanity, as I said earlier, is a debtor to God. The message of salvation is Jesus saying, you can't, you can't pay what you owe. If, it, if it's one, if you've lived a, a completely righteous life and you've made one mistake over 50 years, that's a debt that you can't pay back yourself. It's, a, it's an insurmountable debt. And the message of salvation is Jesus saying to you and I that we can't pay what we owe, so charge it to my account. That's the essence of the gospel, is that there's a debt that you and I can't pay, we couldn't pay, but Jesus came so that we could charge all of our sin, the mountain of debt that we couldn't pay back, we could charge it to his account. Jesus is saying, I lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. I died the sacrificial death that you deserve so that all who believe in me would be free from paying what they owe. It was all paid upon death, P-O-D. Martin Luther says this, and it's in Old English, which really messes me up. He says, here we see how Paul layeth himself out for poor Onesimus. And with all his means, he pleadeth his cause with his master. And so setteth himself as if he were Onesimus, and had himself done wrong to Philemon, even as Christ did for us with God the Father. Thus also doth Paul for Onesimus with Philemon. And he goes on to say, we are, we are all Jesus' Onesimus. That Jesus took our place. He paid our debt that we could never pay back. The question I have for you this morning is, how does this perspective, how does your perspective of the cross of Christ change your thinking and your practice of forgiving others and encouraging others to forgive. Let me ask it again. How does your perspective of what happened on the cross of Christ change your thinking and your practice of forgiving and encouraging others to forgive? You see, Paul is encouraging Philemon to live out the gospel and forgive as he has been forgiven. Paul's embracing the ministry of reconciliation that's been given to him and it's been given to you and I as well. As a people saved by Jesus' sacrificial death, we're called to set aside our comfort, 
to put aside our need to be liked and accepted in order to embrace the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus set aside his relationship with the Father, and he laid down his life so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father, and he's given us that same ministry. We can't save anybody, but he's, he's allowed us to be the mouthpiece of reconciliation. Paul encourages this type of gospel-informed living in, cha- in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, or 16 through 21. Did I already say this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible? It's my, whole, it's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Receive him back as a brother, not as a servant. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here it is, the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, this is what reconciliation, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There's that word counting. Paul told Philemon to count all of Onesimus' um, debt, charge it to my account. And that's what Jesus did. He's not, he doesn't count our trespasses or our sins or our debts against us. And, he, and then furthermore, he entrusts us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here it is, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. It's the heart of the gospel. That Jesus came to take our sin. He took all of it. Yes, uh, yesterday's sin, today's sin, and tomorrow's sin. And it doesn't stop there, that he clothed us in Christ's righteous robes. Jesus didn't just take our sin, but we took on his righteousness. So that the Father sees Jesus when he sees us. You see, forgiveness is an act of the will informed by Christ's forgiveness towards us. And there's a a question that I had to ask that isn't implicit here, but we we had to ask it because it's been asked of me and I've asked it myself. What about consequences for our sin? When somebody sins against us, what about consequences? Okay, you've told me that I need to forgive them. God's word is clear that we need to forgive them. What about consequences? Do I let them off the hook? Do I enforce consequences? When someone wrongs me, does it mean there should never be consequences? Paul, is, Paul is, uh, seems to be asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus and not to uh, bring down any consequences on him in this particular example. But is this the prescription for all circumstances? And the answer to that is no. Should the offender always be released and protected from the consequences of their wrong? And the answer to that is no. They shouldn't always be released and protected from the consequences of their wrong. Every situation is unique and should be seen through the lens of Scripture and the ultimate desire, don't miss this, for God's best for the offender. No, even if consequences are required, you want to know if you've forgiven somebody or not? Do you want God's best for them? Or do you hope they pay for what they did? That's human nature. I've I've felt that before. 
you know? I mean, with the Diamondbacks did the Rockies last year, I hope they pay for it this year. No, when people wrong me, that was wrong, but when people really wrong me, there's times where I want them to pay for it. That tells me, that is a, that is a light on the dashboard of reconciliation that says, beep, 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 not forgiven, not forgiven. And if you want to exercise consequences and you're not the authority over this situation, um, you, you also, it, it also uh, brings to light a wrong heart. Philemon is a unique situation where a slave leads, uh, leaves as an unregenerate rebel and returns a different man. And Paul is encouraging Philemon as a Christian brother to receive back and forgive another Christian brother. Let me give you four points on on um, whether we should exercise consequences or not. First of all, forgiveness does not necessarily release the offender from consequences, admonishment, or discipline. Forgiveness does not necessarily release the offender from consequences, admonishment, or discipline. God forgives a believer, and so should you, Christian, yet oftentimes there, are, there, there should be consequences for sinful choices. Um, we're called to forgive even if the person hasn't asked for forgiveness. We're called to forgive even if that person continues the same habits that hurt us. There are, there are no um, qualifiers on forgiveness. None at all. Number two, those in positions of authority may need to dis- discipline the offender after forgiving him. Two things I want to point out here is that um, God has placed a, an authority structure that brings about consequences. If you've been harmed in a way where it's, where it's illegal, God has given us a system to take care of that. And there's nothing wrong with, with actually having a person arrested or, um, or some other consequence by that, that's, that, that comes from our government. But even if you have to call the cops on somebody that's hurt you bad, your goal should not be, I hope they get what they, they deserve. Actually, you should pray for them that they get what they don't deserve, and that's salvation in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Here's some of the authorities that God has put in place that can exercise um, discipline or bring about consequences for sin. Parents. Parents are called to discipline their children when needed. God commands the church to discipline the unrepentant believer. Um, The government. Discipline is always an act of love. Number three. You may need to admonish the offender even though you have forgiven him. Um, we all got blind spots. And if, I'm, um, if, if Jeremy and I are, are doing life together or Sean and I are doing life together, Sean and I have probably done more life together, so he's probably got, like, you probably need to come to me with some things because I know myself. But, but when, we, when we do life together, when we hang out together, and you start to see patterns of sin in my life, patterns of sin in my life, and you see that I'm not honoring the Lord there, that the, the loving thing for you to do is actually to come to me and lovingly admonish me. And um, do you know what you do before you admonish? Always forgive. Always forgive. Why forgive first? If you come and admonish me or I come and admonish you and I haven't forgiven you first, what am I doing? I'm just getting things off my chest. I'm bitter, I'm angry, and I want to unleash on you. But if I've done business with the Lord, if I've actually released you from whatever it is that I feel like you owe me because of the way you've treated me, and then I can come to you for your benefit, and you can come to me for my benefit. That's biblical admonishment. There's, that's, uh, admonishing is actually a type of a consequence for sin. But you've always got to forgive before, before admonishing. And number four, 
The offender may not be trustworthy, even though they're forgiven. The offender may not be trustworthy, even though they're forgiven. We should always work towards trust. But it doesn't mean that in a situation where, um, I don't know, I mean, you, you come with the example. Um, in, in, a, in a home situation or, or God forbid, in a molestation situation, um, that we're always called to forgive. But you don't need to put yourself in harm's way and, and falsely trust somebody when that person still has those same patterns of doing harm to you. Does that make sense? But where we get it wrong, where secular counselors get it wrong, is they, they tell you to just move out and, and, um, and move on. Jesus says, move on towards forgiveness. And it's okay to be separated, whether it be in your heart or physically for a season. And if you have any questions on that at all, uh, talk to one of the pastors. Here's kind of the bottom line statement for those four points. Consequences brought about by the authority structure God put in place are not only allowed, but they're necessary in many situations. However, bold in my notes, our goal and desire should not be to have the offender pay for his wrong. Do you see the difference? You can exercise God's given authority and let, and let it play out. Let the consequences play out. But your desire should not be to give them what they deserve. The scriptures say that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This verse in Galatians 6, chapter, uh, verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, wrecked me a couple years ago when I taught through it. It says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression... If anyone is caught in any transgression for any reason, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So the sense here is that there's a sinner that is caught in sin. And and it's it's a picture of a net where fish are caught in the net and they can't get out. And it's not to excuse somebody's sin, but all of us have a story. All of us, when we sin, there's something going on in our heart. That we're entangled to wrong thinking. We're in bondage somehow to, um, to, to past sins and past patterns. And it says that when, you're, when somebody sins against you and they understand that they might be caught in a transgression, it says you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. What's the goal? It's restoration. The goal isn't pounding somebody. The goal isn't to, um, to get something off my chest. It's to, see, it's to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. gentleness. And it says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And what that means is, um, Matthew says it too, when you've, before you take that speck out of somebody else's eye that has sinned against you, remove the log. Remove the log from your own eye. Lest you too be tempted. And so then it says, bear one another's burdens. This, this sinner who may need to have consequences for his or her sin, bear their burden. So to fulfill the law of Christ, what's the law of Christ? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and P.S., neighbors aren't just the people that treat you well. Neighbors aren't just those who don't sin against you. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's look at... Uh, Verse 19b through 20, and then we'll, we'll march along here. It says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your life, your, your own self, Philemon. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. You see, Paul is emphasizing his desire for Philemon to benefit and refresh him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does anybody remember what the word Onesimus means? What is it? Profitable, exactly. Profitable, uh, beneficial. That's actually what it means in Greek, and there's a play on words here, where benefit is from the same word as anismus, or profitable, or useful. And what, Philemon, what Paul is saying is he's saying, I'm sending back to you beneficial. I'm sending back to you profitable or useful. Who will be more benefit to you than he was before he ran away? He's saying, Onesimus is your benefit or for your profit. So now, Philemon, you be my Onesimus. You be my profit, my benefit. Refresh my heart by doing what is required. Forgive him and receive him as a brother. And Paul this man, that he can be tough when he needs to be tough, and he can just be loving and encouraging, like he is in this letter. In verse 21, he circles, he goes full circle, same place he was in verses 4 through 7, and he affirms what he sees in Philemon. He says, confident of your obedience, Philemon, I write to you. I know the goodness of Christ in you. I know that you have the Spirit of God in you. And I know that you will do even more than I say. Jesus gives us grace upon grace. He gives us more than we can ask or can even imagine. And Paul is encouraging Philemon to extend that grace more than Onesimus deserves or even needs. They would extend that grace to Onesimus to the glory of God and for the sake of the mission. He says, I have confidence that you will. And then Paul closes off this encouraging and affectionate appeal to his beloved brother Philemon by asking Philemon to pray that he would be released from jail and by God's grace be able to see his good friends and brothers in Christ serving the Lord together. Paul says, pray for me. Make a room for me. I'm coming. I'd love to come. There's nothing I'd rather do than come and be with you and see the work that the Lord has done in your relationship with Onesimus. In the meantime, while he stays in jail, he says, greetings from the brothers in Rome to you and your church. The grace of the Lord be with your spirit. Today's Palm Sunday. And we really haven't followed the church calendar during this um, Lenten season. But today is Palm Sunday. And as we look at Luke, the gospel according to Luke, we see in chapter 9 that Jesus, after living most of his life, he's about three weeks away from being crucified. It says that, it says in chapter 9, verse 51, he says, when, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go through Jerusalem. Jesus lived a spotless life. Not one sin. Not one mistake. And he, he set himself for Jerusalem. What that means is, is that, that he knew that he had come to the earth, God in Abad, to pay to go to Jerusalem, to die, and to pay for the debt that we couldn't pay for. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And then Palm Sunday is what we're celebrating today, is a day on the church calendar that marks Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. 
And there's an account in Luke 19, and the people in Luke 19 had great insight, but also great misunderstanding. Listen to this, Luke 19, 37 through 38. And as he was drawing near, the day is coming. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, he had, that they had seen. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they were correct. They were correct that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In fact, he was and he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is and he was the son of David. He is and he was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The people recognized him as the Messiah who would bring peace from their enemies. But what they didn't recognize is that he came to provide peace with God. You see, we were the enemies. And the only way for us to be reconciled to the Father was for someone to pay the mountain of debt that we couldn't pay on our own. The great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works that he would take the throne and make Israel free from the tyranny of Rome. But it wasn't going to be that way. He would take his throne, but it would be through voluntary suffering and death and a glorious, victorious resurrection. And he would bring peace, peace with God for all who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. <coughs> he, in fact, does reign. He reigns and he rules from his good throne at the right hand of the Father. In Luke 19, 41 through 42, it says this. <coughs> when, he knew, when he drew near to the city, he wept over it. He cried. We got to ask ourselves, why did he cry? Like, what am I doing? I don't want to die. He cried because he knew that there were many people in Jerusalem and throughout all of history that wouldn't recognize him as the Messiah. It says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The things that make for peace aren't a different government. It's not a different marriage. It's not running from people that have hurt you. The things that make for peace is a Savior who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. He wept not because of the fear of dying. He wept because of those who were blinded and didn't understand the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, 